You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. I want to tell you a story, and just so you know that I'm not speaking of any particular person, but have combined some stories, and we're giving the character in the story the name of Darren. Everyone in the church seems so excited about Darren's profession of faith. People in the church have been praying for him for some time, and Darren seemed excited to want to follow Jesus, and his excitement was contagious. His baptism was sweet as people gathered to hear his testimony, his profession of faith that day. Everything seemed to go pretty well for a while. Then it just seemed like Darren had so many things come up that kept him from various meetings of the church. He was increasingly absent from the gathering to worship together. And it seemed like one thing after another kept him from his life group gatherings. His closest friends began to notice that his spiritual passions were noticeably cooling to the point that when they were together, it was awkward at times. Some of the people in the church noticed that he seemed to be gravitating back to his B.C., his before Christ lifestyle. To be candid, Darren's life was not evidencing, evidencing any passion for Christ, and he certainly was not reflecting the character of Christ and the way he was living day by day. Thankfully, a couple of the men from his life group met with him, asking him what was going on in his life. Darren made it clear that he felt like everything was fine between him and God. Just fine. And then he got defensive. And he said, hey, do you guys remember my baptism? I mean, you were there. You heard me give my profession of faith. I'm cool with God, and he's cool with me. You know, to be candid, it's my life. It's none of your business. So would you just quit bugging me? Well, what would you have said to Darren at that point? What, what would you have said to Darren? Maybe more importantly, what would Jesus have said? Join me, if you will, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15. And as we begin in chapter 15 today, looking at verses 1 through 11, we're going to see an extended metaphor. An extended metaphor where Jesus talks about vine and branches and fruit. You follow along in your Bible, whether you turn or tap. To John 15, the first 11 verses, we're listening to Jesus here when he said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What prompted Jesus to begin talking about vines and branches? (laughs) Well, John doesn't give us any specificity here, but one possibility that I think is fascinating is if you look at the very last sentence of the previous chapter, right at the end of chapter 14, it says, Rise, let us go from here. Now, those of you that have been with us over recent weeks as we've looked at the Gospel of John together, you're going to be able to connect some dots. Some of you are guests today. Welcome. In this part of the Gospel of John, John, I describe it this way. John has been writing about the life of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ. He begins in chapter 1, verse 1, in eternity past. So it's like he's flying through eons of history. And then you get to chapter 13, and it's like he hits the slow-mo button. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 are all about one night, the night before the cross. It seems really important that the Holy Spirit moved John to tell us all this of Jesus' happenings and Jesus' words that night before the cross. They were in the upper room. And Jesus was talking to his men. He washed their feet. They had the Last Supper together. Passover meal. And now in the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, rise, let's go from here. And it's possible that they actually left the room at that point. They might have lingered for a while. Some of this might have been spoken in the upper room yet. Some of it might have been spoken on the way to Gethsemane. That's where they were headed. If you read the very first verse of chapter 18, it describes them crossing the brook Kidron and entering the Garden of Gethsemane, which was across the valley from the temple. To get from where they were to where they were going, they would have gone right by the temple, the temple complex. And the temple of that era, Herod's temple, had over the door of the temple and and down the sides this large, ornate, golden vine. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that that vine that went around three sides of that door continued to grow over the years because wealthy Jewish people would seek to leave a memorial for their family or a lost loved one. And and they would donate a gold leaf or a a gold cluster of grapes. And then goldsmiths would attach it to that ever-growing vine around the door to the temple. It's possible that Jesus and his men were actually passing by the temple as Jesus made this statement. We don't know for sure. That's conjecture. But why the vine? Why was the vine over the temple door? Why was Jesus talking about a a vine? Well, the vine, and this helps us understand what Jesus is doing here, 
the vine was the national emblem of Israel. Just like the majority of us in this room are Americans, and we know that the common emblem of our country is the bald eagle. You see the bald eagle on something, and it makes you think of the United States of America. Well, when Jewish people saw a vine, it reminded them of the nation of Israel, that the vine was the emblem of Israel. And you see this in the scriptures. Let's look at Psalm 80. Uh, we could read a, a large section of Psalm 80, but let me just read verses 8 through 11 with you. About a thousand years before this, the Holy Spirit wrote through the psalmist, You brought a vine out of Egypt, speaking of God. You brought a vine out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. So, you know, the people of Israel would have sung this in the worship services. Psalm 80 was one of the songs they sang. And they would celebrate God's kindness in making Israel the vine. That God redeemed them out of Egypt and planted them in the promised land. And, and it was to grow and fill and bring God glory. But why would Jesus, on this night before the cross, refer to himself as the true vine? Well, we go back to the Old Testament and we could read one of a half dozen passages that say something about this vine of Israel. I've just picked two. Let me read with you Isaiah chapter 5. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses. You follow along on the screen there. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a, a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that rain no rain upon it, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness but behold an outcry friends this is one of probably six passages in the old testament where god grieves he grieves over the vineyard he planted not bearing good grapes another one is in jeremiah chapter 2 where jeremiah laments yet i planted you a choice vine holy of pure seed how then have you turned degenerate and have become a wild vine. God planted Israel as his vine to bring him glory. But Israel rebelled against God, ignored God, and did not produce good fruit. And so on this night before the cross, on this night before the cross, Jesus announces to his men, shocking words I'm sure in their ears, I am the true vine. Jesus is clearly making a contrast. He's contrasting himself with a vine that preceded him. 
he is saying, implying, that Israel is not the genuine vine. It is not the true thing, because they never bore the good fruit for which God planted them, cultivated them, blessed them. And so he is the true vine. This, this would have been a great shift in the thinking of his men. Many of the people of Israel thought of their connection with God as being through their, their ethnicity, their nation of birth, Israelites. And if I could put it in my words, their thinking would have been something like this. I am a son of Israel. I grew up in God's vineyard. And because I grew up in God's vineyard, because I live in God's vineyard, the nation of Israel, then I'm okay with God and God's okay with me. My connection with God is the vine of Israel. But Jesus is saying, Israel failed. Israel rebelled. They did not keep their connection to God. So if you think they're going to be, Israel's going to be your connection with God, you're putting your hope in a people that did not follow through with God's ordination for them. But Jesus says, I am the true vine. He is the fulfillment, the genuine article of which they were not. And here is a shift, and I don't have time to delve into this deeply today, but here is a shift from Old Covenant thinking to New Covenant thinking. And if you read, look for those phrases, New Covenant, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Ezekiel, where God had promised through the prophets hundreds of years before, the shift was coming. And now Jesus says, it's here. I am he. I am the true vine. In other words, if you want to be connected with God, you have to be connected to me. Growing up in the vineyard of Israel is not sufficient. That will not guarantee you a connection with God. If you're going to be connected with God, you have to be connected to the genuine vine, the true vine, and that is me. You know, we can sit here today and say, well, we're not first century Jews. What does that have to do with us? Friends, it has everything to do with us. It has everything to do with us. It has to do with our ultimate purpose of creation, our ultimate purpose of existence. It has to do with God's ultimate purpose for our redemption. If you'll, with me, take two or three giant steps back so we can get the big panorama of the history of the human race. Why did God create human beings in the first place? Why do you and I exist as human beings? God put Adam and Eve in the garden to bring him glory by bringing fruitfulness to the world he had made. They were to be fruitful for the glory of God, the great king. They were a prince and princess under his authority. And if you're familiar at all with the beginning chapters of God's book, the Bible, you know and I know that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Rather than being happy with that commission to bring him glory by being fruitful in the earth he had made, they decided they'd rather launch out on their own. They would rather be accountable to themselves than him. They bought into Satan's lie. Satan said, why being under the authority of God when you can be God? Why do you be dependent on God's explanation of your life when you can find your own way in life? Launch out on your own. It'll be better. But when they launched out on their own, rather than it getting better, it got worse. It got eternally worse where now their created purpose was all confused and twisted. 
when sin came and infected them and the whole human race and all of creation around them. And God launched his pre-planned redemption story. And it's a significant part of that. He chose, out of all the nations, he chose not the most significant nation, but one of the less significant nations. He chose the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac and Jacob. And he redeemed them as his son out of Egypt. And he took his redeemed people out of Egypt and he planted them in the promised land. And he said, I'm putting you here and I want you to bring me by you reflecting my passions, by you reflecting my priorities, by you reflecting my character, my chosen son, Israel, I want you to bring glory to me by by being fruitful in my name. But as you know and I know, like Adam and Eve ahead of them, Israel did not fulfill their commission. They also, like our common ancestor, Adam, rebelled against God. And where God went to look for good grapes, what he found was wild grapes, degenerate grapes. And so what did God do? What did God do? Did God just scrap his plan for humanity? Did he just scrap his plan for us image bearers and say, well, that didn't work? Not at all. It's a central part of his plan of redemption. He had planned to send his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came to this planet, and this is important, friends. He came to this planet as the God-man. Now, now because many people deny the deity, the godness of Jesus Christ, we tend to lean on that part of his identity, and maybe rightfully so. But he was the God-man. The Word became flesh. John makes that an emphasis in his opening sentences, his prologue. The Word became flesh that Jesus Christ became a real human being. Why did he come to be that real human being? What did did we sing a few minutes ago? I didn't know the songs that were picked, but praise God for ordaining that Marcos would pick this one, where we just sang a few minutes ago the true and better Adam. Do you realize how much theology is packed into that phrase? The true and better Adam. The first Adam failed. And so God sent his son as the second Adam, Paul calls him. Paul also calls him the last Adam. Or I would like to put that into my own paraphrase, the ultimate Adam. The the ultimate man. The perfect image bearer. The exact representation of his being. So Jesus Christ came to this planet as the sinless, perfect God-man. The exact representation of God's being. That everything about Jesus reflected God's character, his passions, his priorities. That Jesus always, always obeyed his Father. Isn't that fascinating? Not once, never once in his 33 years on this planet did he ever slip up or forget or neglect or choose to disobey. What are some of the sentences right before Jesus said this? Look at verse 31 of chapter 14. Do you see it there? I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus just said that. 
He just said, I always do what the Father wants me to do. Always. Without fail. I am here as the true and better Adam. I am here as the perfect image bearer. The one who is here to bring my Father glory. All that I do, all that I say, points to Him. I am here to show you God. I am here to bring you to God. I am the true vine. God wants us, as His redeemed image bearers, to live fruitful lives for His glory. That's what we were created for. That's what we were redeemed for. Look at chapter 15, verse 8. By this, you want to know how to glorify God? By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. But to bear fruit, we have to stay connected to Jesus Christ. We have to stay connected to Him. He wants us to bear fruit by being connected to Him. Our default is to depend on ourselves to figure out life, to find out what happiness is, to find out what meaning is. I was, I was thinking about this, and it struck me that I don't know anybody in this church that spent very much time working a vineyard. Am I wrong on that? Any of you here spend a lot of time working a vineyard? Okay, there's hundreds of people in this room, and for the listening to recording, not a single hand went up. That was my hunch. Now, maybe if you lived in California or Tuscany in Italy or something, maybe that would be a different story. But we're not familiar vineyard people here. But you know one thing we have in our culture that we're used to? Cords. Electricity. (laughs) And let me show you a slide that we found recently. Uh, This typifies so many people's lives. Um, Now, some of you are already noticing what's unique about this power strip. You know, if this power strip represents some people's lives... You know, they're trying to plug into things and have things plug into their life and they're saying, nothing's working. Nothing's working. You know, it's like, I'm so frustrated. My life isn't working. I'm so unhappy. Why isn't my life working? And they're plugged into themselves. And, And that is so typical of how we live life. That we think it's my life, I'll figure it out. I'll find out what's happy. I'll find my purpose in life. And all we are is plugged into ourselves and nothing happens. But if we stay plugged into Jesus Christ, there's a lamp there plugged into an outlet. We're shining, aren't we? We're shining. We're bearing fruit, as it were. A simple illustration. Now, you probably don't have a lot of opportunities to go into a vineyard, but I bet almost all of us are going to turn on a lamp sometime in the next 24 hours. And when you do, just let that remind you, that's kind of the picture of what it means to be connected to Christ. We're plugged into him, and when we're plugged into him, we bear fruit. We, We shine for him. Jesus said we need to stay connected to him. We need to remain with him. The word remain, some of you have the the, uh, translations abide. That word appears over and over in this passage. I think 11 times, something like 11 times in this chapter, Jesus uses, uses this word that's translated either remain or abide. And I think it's something like 40 times in the Gospel of John. This is a word John uses over and over again. Uh, By the Holy Spirit's direction. Remain. Abide in me. Jesus Christ. What's that mean? What does that mean? I've heard people get really mystical with that sometimes to the point that it's just real fuzzy. Like, I I don't know what they're talking about. I found some clarity in reading one of the old writers, an English pastor from the late 18, early 1900s, J.C. Ryle. Uh, Listen, or listen to me as I read this. You'll see it on your screen there. A quote from J.C. Ryle. 
uh, Pastor Ryle wrote years ago, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with him. To be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them our guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. I appreciate how he said that. In a sense, it's living every day with our focus on Christ himself. We depend on him. We enjoy him. We enjoy spending time with him. We, we think about him. We read about him in his word. We pray to him. We pour out our hearts to him. There seems to be an emphasis in Jesus' comments here in chapter 15. and verse 7, he talks about the words, about my words remaining in you or abiding in you. If we want to know Jesus Christ, we need to listen to him. We read his word. It becomes our connection to understand who he is, that we could admire him and adore him, that we could come to, to worship him and obey him. So if we are, if we are connected to Jesus Christ, by his grace, by his grace, if we are connected to Jesus Christ, Jesus says, if you're connected to me, if you remain in me, abide in me, you will bear fruit. What's he talking about? What fruit? Well, look at the passage here. I, I think the point, and, and the more I read this passage, the more I'm convicted that this is the case. I think what Jesus is getting at here is if you're connected to him, the vine, then if I could use vine terminology... It, it's like his sap. It's like his sap is flowing through the veins of our lives. And we're going to bear fruit that looks like him. We're going to bear fruit that looks like his fruit. So it's not like our fruit is unrelated to him. It's like we're connected to him. So what he is, his priorities, his passions, his character are going to be lived out in us because we're connected to him. In other words, Christ's likeness. Years later, John would write his first letter, the first epistle of John. And in 1 John 2, 5 and 6, John wrote this. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says, listen to the wording, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. So if you and I are connected to Jesus Christ, we're plugged into him. And his electricity, his, his sap is flowing through our lives we are going to reflect him. When we live life, the choices we make in life, the things that matter to us, the things we love, the things we hate, are going to be very reflective of him, what matters to him. And right here in this passage, Jesus tells us some of that fruit, doesn't he? Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So one of the fruits that is born, if we're connected to Jesus Christ, is Christ-like, Christ-reflecting love. We will love as Jesus loves. In that first letter of John, 1 John chapter 4, he would later write this. And so we know, I like the way the NIV translates it here, so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And so what John is saying there is he applies this principle in his letter. He's saying this. By the way, Jesus says a little bit later in this passage that that love is especially shown in how we love one another. 
So let me just imagine with you for a minute that there is some brother, some sister in Christ here in our church that's difficult to love. I know it's just hypothetical, but what if? You know, what if? What if you knew a brother or sister in Christ that was just difficult to love at times? Maybe that person actually lives in your house. (laughs) Maybe it's me. How are you going to love me when I'm grouchy, I'm not being very kind, or I'm ignoring you? How are you going to love me? Is is this fruit of love going to be you saying, well, I just got to do it. Just got to do it. And you find yourself coming up short time after time. But do you hear what Jesus is saying here in John 15? And then John fleshes out for us in 1 John 4. He says we know and rely on the love God has for us. And so if we're connected to the vine, Jesus Christ, his love, his sap, is flowing through our lives, and his love is bearing fruit that reflects him and illustrates our dependence on him. And so I describe it this way. If you're, being, if you're being challenged to love a difficult person, it could be your spouse, it could be your parents, it could be your brother or sister, it could be a friend. Can I ask you to go vertical? Go vertical. You don't say, how lovable is this person? How do I feel about this person? But you go vertical and you think, how has he loved me? His sap is coming into my life. He loves me. How do you know he loves you? The cross. You never have to go farther than that. Or you can go farther than that, but you never have to go further than that. And, and I, I see Christians wrestling sometimes with how I don't know if God loves me. My life is so hard right now. How do I know he loves me? And they're looking at God's love through the, through the lens of their problems. And my friends, we must look at our problems through the lens of his love. That, that, that we, we know the cross is there. We know, we know that the greatest expression of love ever in the history of the human race was the cross of Jesus Christ. And we have the lens of the cross in front of us. And we, we look through that lens on our problems and we say, oh, how he loves me. And we see purpose even in our problems. We'll come back to that in a minute. But when we are challenged to love others, we go vertical and we say, oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more can he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. And with that sap flowing into the veins of our souls, we can love the most difficult people because it's His fruit. It's the fruit of His Spirit that is flowing through us as we bear that fruit of love. Look at verse 12. The fruit of obedience. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That's with the previous statement, but He says in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as my Father. I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. One of the fruits that come through Christ into us is the fruit of obedience. You know, it's not some sort of drudgery. We think, all right, I've got to obey God. (laughs) But if we see Him, if His sap is flowing through us, then obedience will become a delight to us, a joy. Because we know that's why he made me. That's why he redeemed me. Oh, what did the psalmist say? Oh, how I delight in your law. 
And the third fruit we see in this passage, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We bear the fruit of joy. That brings the Father glory, doesn't it? You know, it's interesting that Satan still tries his sneaky schemes on people. He still does. He tried to convince Adam and Eve that life would be a lot better without God. Launch out on your own and everything fell apart. Everything went down the tubes in that moment. And he still does it. He still tries to convince people life would be a whole lot better without God. Launch out on your own. Determine your own meaning in life. Go find your own happiness. And that's not what we were made for. And when we do that, nothing ever works. It's a dead end. But when his sap flows through us and we say, oh, what, what a joy it is to obey my loving Father. What a delight it is to do his will. The fruit of obedience. There's another fruit here in verse 7, I think. He says in verse 7 that whatever you ask, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. It's the fruit of fruitful prayer. By the way, this verse has been taken out of context so many times. I wish I didn't have to talk about it, but I probably do. People read verses like this in the Bible and say, Oh, God will do whatever I say. You know, I, I want to get straight A's without working for it. <laughs> I want to get a million bucks. I want to win the lottery, you know. And like, he's got to do what he said he'd do it. Look at the context. He's saying, if my sap is flowing through you, and so if, if the sap of Jesus Christ is flowing through us, do you know what that does to us? It changes our affections. It changes our priorities. It changes our passions. So what we're passionate about is what he's passionate about. His priorities become our priorities. And because his sap is flowing through us and Everything about us is colored by Him and guided by Him. When we pray, guess what we're praying for? We're praying for the things that matter to Him. We're praying for His glory. And as we pray the kind of prayers Jesus prayed, the Holy Spirit says, I am glad to answer those prayer requests. I'm glad to do that. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, glad to do for you. That's not a magic formula. He's saying, if my sap's flowing through, you're going to pray the kind of things I would pray. And we're going to find ourselves glorying in the answers to those prayers. There's more we could talk about. Let me mention one briefly. It's not in this uh, passage of today, but if you glance down toward the end of verse, the end of chapter 15 to verse 27, he says, you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And I think that is another fruit. It's not as directly tied here in the passage for today, the 11 verses, but I think it's there. That one of the fruits that we have in being connected to Jesus Christ is that we bear witness to him. We draw attention to him as we live life. A few comments here. Jesus talks about pruning. The father, who's the vine dresser, the owner of the vineyard, he comes and he prunes us so that we would be more fruitful. When you prune something, you're trimming off. You're trimming off some extraneous branches or leaves, something that's not contributing to the bearing of fruit. And sometimes pruning is painful. I almost want to say it's always painful, but let me moderate that a bit. It's usually painful. But we must keep in mind that the reason that God, the vine dresser, prunes us isn't punishment, but it's to help us bear more fruit, good fruit. 
He strips away what's not essential. He strips away what's detrimental. We must remember the purpose of the pruning. The purpose of the pruning is so that we would produce more fruit in our lives for God's glory. And there are different passages in the Bible that echo this. And one that came to my mind as I was working on this sermon is Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. It says, we rejoice in sufferings. Boy, does that sound strange. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why would we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so, friends, as we go through seasons of pruning, let's remember God's glorious purposes. He is for us, not against us. And he's pruning us so that we would bear more fruit. And I think about our church here and all different ones of you currently are going through pruning. We all do at times. Or maybe he's pruning away previously enjoyed health. You say, why is he doing that? We might not know the specifics, but we do know the point. If he's pruning away previously enjoyed health, it is for your good. That he's wanting you through that trial to bear more good fruit. Or maybe he's pruning away from you previously enjoyed financial resources or a job. A job you've enjoyed or resources that you thought you were going to have in old age that are suddenly diminishing. You say, why is he doing that? It is for our good. He's saying, don't depend on your job, don't depend on your, your savings account, depend on me. And he's pruning us so that we would bear more fruit, or maybe he's pruning a relationship. We could go on and on, but you think about things he's, he's excising, he's, he's cutting out of our lives. Why is he doing that? He's doing it for our good so that we would bear more fruit for the glory of God. So let's not waste, let's not waste our trials. Let's not waste our suffering. Remember, our heavenly vine dresser is pruning us for his purposes. They never, friends, suffering never comes randomly. God is never sitting on his throne watching us on our suffering and saying, Whoa, where did that come from? Oh, he knows where it came from. He's directing our lives. He's pruning for our good and for his glory. And as time is marching on, we need to take a few minutes and talk about what about these fruitless branches Jesus is talking about. Did you see that in verse 2? He said, every branch that in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In verse 6, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Friends, not everyone who professes to be a Christian is actually connected to Christ. Not everyone who professes to be a Christian is genuinely saved. That's a subject that's rarely talked about in our American Christianity, but it is the teaching of God's Word. That praying the sinner's prayer or trying to convince other people that you're saved whenever you're showing no connection to Jesus Christ is a sham. And friends, it's a damning sham. It's not a small matter. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, by their fruit, 
you will recognize them. And I feel like we could paraphrase our Lord in, in this passage in John 15 to say, say it this way, by their fruitlessness you will recognize them, by their fruitlessness. John, in his first letter again, would say, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might be plain that they were not of us. Many of the Jews in Jesus' day had a false assurance of salvation. They thought growing up in the vineyard, being a Jew, being an Israelite, is my connection with God. And Jesus is saying, you're putting your hope in the wrong thing. Israel did not bear good fruit. Don't put your hope there. Put your hope in me. And in our day, a lot of people think, hey, I'm a member of the church. I go to church regularly. I grew up in the church. I'm okay with God. And it's very similar. A lot of people today put their hope in their external circumstances. You know, I go to church. I'm a member of the church. I grew up in the church, however you want to say it. But they're not connected to Jesus Christ. Jesus said the only way to be connected with God is to be connected through him. To have his life-giving sap flowing into our souls, evidencing itself by Christ-like character, Christ-like conduct. I mean, right here on this night was a vivid reminder of someone who thought he was connected to Jesus Christ, but was not. It was a man named Judas. Let me make some pastoral comments for those who are wrongfully discouraged right now. I know this is a hard sermon. And I want to make some pastoral comments to the fragile souls among us. Some of you are sitting there right now questioning your salvation, and maybe, maybe you should be hearing words of assurance. <laughs> Listen, my friends, the best Christians are flawed. The most mature Christians are flawed. None of us perfectly does God's will all the time. You know that, and I know that. So when Jesus says this, he's not saying that if you don't see perfection 100% of the time, you're not connected to Christ. Bearing fruit takes time. And some of you are still baby Christians, and and you, you need to be patient with the Spirit's work in your life, that He is producing fruit in you over time. I like to encourage people, especially younger Christians, looking at more mature Christians, say, oh, I fall so far short. I say, listen, why don't you focus on growing a day's worth today? You're not going to get to be like that person that's walked with Christ for 40 years in a day. Why don't you just focus on growing a day's worth today? And this week, focus on growing a week's worth. And this month, focus on growing a month's worth. And this year, focus on growing a year's worth. And you know what? Maybe in 40 years, you will be, you will be bearing fruit like that older saint that's walked with Christ for decades. But, but be patient. The Spirit is working in your life. But there should be some evidence of, of fruit. Um, and there's even that reality that some people in the Lord's providence, maybe because of their context, or maybe because of their giftedness, or maybe it's because of their level of maturity, some people tend to bear more fruit than others. Jesus himself said that. He said some bear fruit a hundredfold, a hundred times over. Some bear fruit sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. But the point is, if you're a genuine Christian, there should be some Christ-like fruit flowing out of you. Pastor acquaintance of mine said this, if you are a Christian, you should see some growth or progress in these things. You should be in the habit of obeying Christ. You should see the fruit of the Spirit increasing in your conduct. 
You should be hungering and thirsting after righteousness with increasing intensity. You should be looking for opportunities to tell others about the Savior. If you're not seeing these fruits growing in your life at all, you need to figure out why not. Growth in Christ-like fruit should be the normal experience of every Christian. It should be the norm that you're bearing fruit. If you're feeling weak right now, you are. And I am too. And we need to remember what Jesus said in this passage. He said that it would be him bearing the fruit in us. I realize some of you were saved as adults, but for those of us that were saved as children or at least grew up in Christian homes, grew up in the context of local church, what was one of the very first Christian songs you learned as a toddler? What was one of the very first songs you learned as a toddler if you grew up in a Christian home? Yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. We should not forget that early song in our Christian experience. We're weak, he's strong. Our hope is in him. It's his sap that's flowing through us. So what do you think, friends? What would you have said to Darren that day? Well, without trying to sound silly, what was going through my mind this last week is, is Christianity kind of like yogurt? You can get it with fruit or without fruit. What's your preference? You like yogurt with fruit? You like yogurt without fruit? A lot of people think of Christianity that way. You can get it with fruit or without fruit. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus said, if you don't bear fruit, you're not my disciple. There should be some semblance of Christ-likeness in your life, even if it's in bud form, even if it's in bud form. There be some evidence that his sap is flowing into your life. If you say, oh, you know, God has been so gracious to me. I, he is working in my life. He is working through my life, and he gets the glory. Yes, yes, and yes. So our response, I think, to this passage is not to just go passive and say, well, you know, I guess if he's going to do anything, he's going to do it in my life. Nothing I can do about it. I mean, when Jesus says, remain in my love, that's not passive, that's active. Remain in my love. So I think of like Peter was there that night, right? Peter was there, heard Jesus say this. You know, right at the end, one of the last things we hear from Peter in Second Peter chapter 3, he says, but grow. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in that. So I want to encourage you. Jesus talks about his words abiding, my words abiding in you. Why don't you and I all make the commitment that I want to grow? I want to grow in Christ. I I, I want my appreciation for him to grow. I want my admiration of him to grow. I, I want my worship of him to grow. I want my affection for him to grow. Well, Jesus says, I want my words to abide in you. We're blessed. We're blessed. That we live in a culture where we have the Bible available to us. Even if you have no money, you have the Bible available to you in print, all kind of free apps on your phone where you can read the Bible. How much time do you give it? How much time do you give to reading God's words, Jesus' words, and then just meditating on them, praying over them, enjoying them, enjoying Him? If you've not been in the habit of pursuing Christ, why don't, why don't you start today? And say, I'm going to make some time. I'm going to get up a little earlier, stay up a little later, or whatever. 
I just want to spend time. I want to see Christ. What I do in the mornings, and, and I don't do it every morning. I know I forget sometimes. But in the mornings, I have a particular chair in our living room I sit at. And when I open up my Bible, I pause and I pray a simple prayer. I say, Holy Spirit, let me see Christ today. Let me see Christ today. And I have full confidence in praying that because the Holy Spirit wants the Son honored. And he wants the Son honored in my life. And so I pray that with confidence. Holy Spirit, let me see Christ today. And as I read my Bible, it doesn't matter if I'm in Nehemiah or the Gospel of John. He reminds me of how much I need him, how much I have him. And then we have other opportunities. You're right here today in a worship service. You're listening to a sermon. Can I just ask you as one of the preachers, lean in. Lean in. <laughs> Don't tune out. Don't lean back. Lean in. And it's another opportunity to hear God's word, hear the words of Christ. We have life education classes in our church. They're in your bulletin today, a little handout. You say, well, there's another opportunity. I could learn more about Christ and his word. You have life groups to discuss God's word. We have all these opportunities here at CCC of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take advantage of those. Can I encourage you to do that? And as we do that, J.C. Rouse said in another place, fruitfulness in Christian practice will not only bring glory to God, but will supply the best evidence to our hearts that we are real disciples of Christ. That there's an assurance that comes when we see his sap flowing through us bearing fruit. Some of you are here today and you're realizing, you know what, I don't know if I've ever been converted. If that's your case, please know that Christ says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, come to me. Why don't you obey the gracious command of our gracious Lord in coming to him today? And he will give you new life. Let me leave you with these words that end our passage today, and then the worship team will come. At the end of verse 11, it says, These things, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full.